All right, welcome to a very special episode of Inappropriate Earl. Um, this is uh, an episode I do with a heavy heart, not because I'm not sad about the content of it. Um, I had a guest drop out yesterday, and I thought, you know, I'll, I'll do a solo show all on my own, which I've never done before. And talk about a few things that I thought would be interesting to my audience. First of which would be the return. I shouldn't say return, but the debut of a man who for 30 years never wrestled inside of a WWF or WWE ring. And that is the man known as Sting. And no, I don't mean the bass player from the police. I mean the great Steve Borden. And who I think actually copyrighted the name. You'd think the guy from the police would have been hip to that. But I'm also assuming he was too busy making money to follow the wacky world of professional wrestling. So uh, it was a big uh, news this uh, Sunday when he debuted at Survivor Series. Came in at the, uh, I think, about five minutes left in the pay-per-view and had a great stare down with Triple H. And then he put Triple H in a finishing move known as the Scorpion Death Drop. Delivered it very hard, by the way. And uh, Triple H, uh, who is known for uh, selling, uh, did a great job acting like he was shot by Lee Harvey Oswald. And Sting then put Dolph Ziggler's hand over Seth Rollins' uh, lifeless body. And walked out of the ring. And there you go. 30 years. We waited for five minutes of action. And we got it. So we're going to delve into that for a little bit. And then we're going to, you know, jump ship. And talk about the KISS catalog in the 1980s. And uh, no, I don't mean KISS catalog full of their awful products. Like KISS condoms, KISS rubbers, uh Kiss uh, Pez dispensers, uh, Kiss cutlery sets. Uh, I actually mean when Kiss used to put out albums or CDs uh, or MP3s, as the kids say. I went to Best Buy the other day, and literally they don't sell CDs anymore. And I always loved having um, the physical product in my hand. I mean, I love iTunes, and I've certainly bought a lot of uh, product on iTunes, but you know, you don't get the album cover, and I still to this day don't know uh, how you can read the liner notes and stuff on an iTunes purchase, you know, and uh, but that, you know, I'm old school. I mean, I'm so old school, even my cell phone has a rotary dial. So uh, we're going to get into that. You know, I know uh, Chris D'Elia, Will Sasso, and I think Brian Callen had a 10-minute podcast, or have one, very successful. Um and the podcast I did uh, yesterday it was uh, 54 minutes of greatness. And then when I went to uh, edit it, I found out that I didn't hit the record button. So it shouldn't be like any other uh, day for me. I was just talking to myself for 54 minutes about Sting and Kiss. But uh, I hope you like this episode. It's a labor of love, this podcast. And I'm going to try uh, when guests drop out or can't make it. I'm going to try and do uh, a solo podcast and talk about stuff I think 
that you guys, the listening audience, would like and also uh, that I'm knowledgeable about, which really narrows down the subject field to uh, an 80s metal band and a pro wrestler. You know, and the way uh, pro wrestlers work, maybe we could just do an episode on one who died that week because they have a uh, fallout rate like nobody's business. So I think the uh, there's some list on the Internet where you can literally go and see like about 100 wrestlers who died before the age of 55. And they're all pretty big names. I mean, you, you will recognize... Uh, almost every name and which is kind of ironic given the topic we're talking about because sting is uh i think he's around 55 himself and uh you know clock is ticking for him you know he's, he's probably got maybe maybe two to three uh pay-per-views in him uh, if that um you know if you saw him debut at survivor series uh you know he he didn't drop down from the rafters which i thought he should have but then again, I thought, you know, maybe the WWE is a little uh, scared of uh, having wrestlers uh, drop down from the rafters after the Owen Hart situation. And, uh, you know, staying, I don't know, uh, I don't remember how old Owen Hart was when uh, that unfortunate accident uh, happened. But uh, I think Sting is older and uh, I'm sure they don't want, uh, you know, a 55-year-old guy crashing to his death. And, uh, you know, I love Sting. I don't want that either. Because I'm a big fan of Sting. I've, I've loved him since he debuted in the uh, Continental Wrestling Association. Because he debuted with uh, probably my favorite pro wrestler of all time, the great Jim Helwig, who most of you know under his uh, wrestling name, uh, The Ultimate Warrior. And actually his real name in real life was Warrior. He legally changed his name to Warrior. Uh, and you think, God, what a moron. But then I, I started thinking, that's actually kind of brilliant, you know, because there's this whole thing with wrestlers and the copyrights of their names. You, you know, some, I think, like Hulk Hogan can use Hulkamania wherever they go, and he makes a boatload of money on T-shirts and merchandise. And then others didn't copyright their names. So even though if their T-shirts are flying off the shelves, Vince McMahon is the only one really getting paid. So... I think uh, the Ultimate Warrior, James Helwig, Jim Helwig, Jim Justice Helwig, when he was uh, in the CWA was staying, uh, you know, they were seeing their shirts fly off the shelves making no money, and he just said, fuck it, I'm going to legally change my name to Warrior so he can use the name. Um, and, you know, he unfortunately, speaking of deaths in pro wrestling, uh, passed away uh, this year. Uh, actually... You know, he, he kind of had an interesting uh, story. You know, he ever since the 94 steroid trial with the WWE where guys like him and Hogan were, you know, being accused of roiding and guys were having to testify against Vince McMahon, uh, you know, got real ugly with him and the WWE. And he literally went damn near 20 years without talking to Vince McMahon. And uh, I think earlier this year, Triple H made a, an extension of, come on back and it was a long process, but he was inducted into the uh, WWE hall of fame, uh, which is crazy that there's a hall of fame for fake wrestling. I mean, and I think another comic did, you know, a bit about this. So I don't want to, you know, steal it, but you know, I'm no Mencia. I mean, Ned and uh, you, you know, it's just like, I can understand the hockey hall of fame, you know, the, the football hall of fame. 
you know, but to to have a uh, Hall of Fame for, you know, guys who are wrestling in predetermined outcome matches, it kind of seems silly. But, uh, you know, listen, what do I know? I mean, I actually thought Kamala was from Africa. By the way, I'd like to plug a uh, a song right now that I don't get any uh, royalties for. You know, Inappropriate Earl has uh, one sponsor, and that's uh, Stephen Piercy's Mike Knuckles. Go check those out on Twitter, or I think you can go on his website and uh, buy them. Uh, I love them. They're like little microphone holders in the shape of brass knuckles. Come in about 50 different models. They're really cool. But uh, Kamala has a single out called Push It, where uh, if you go on YouTube and, and just uh, search uh, Push It Kamala, it uh, might be the greatest written song ever. I mean, Desmond Child has nothing on Kamala, where he basically breaks down the... Uh, <laughs> his time in the WWE and uh, I guess it's a shoot song, you know, where uh, he really gets real. And uh, the chorus where he talks about uh, Pat Patterson and the Brooklyn brawler in the hotel room next to him doing uh, naughty things to each other. Boy, that's something Springsteen couldn't have written on his best day. So, uh, but you know, see how I started this podcast, you know, I said I'm going to break down Sting's debut at Survivor Series, and here I'm talking about Kamala. So uh, that's, but that's the beauty of inappropriate, Earl. You guys know that, you know, when I have guests on, I I start off in one direction and end up, you know, talking about something completely different. I'll get back to Sting though. Um, you know, Sting. Uh, you know, long history in in wrestling. You know, thirty years in the business, and he actually started out. Uh, you know, as a bodybuilder in Venice, and uh, him and uh, Warrior, uh, you know, were like Gold's Gym freaks. And, uh, you know, this goes to show you the uh, the power of persistence because he and Warrior were just struggling guys, you know, like I'm a struggling comic. or And, uh, you know, they sent out their press packets to everybody. Uh, everybody said no. And they're literally making you know, like one last batch of phone calls and, uh, you know, this guy calls and, you know, they had, uh, started out as this, uh, foursome, uh, kind of like the four horsemen, but they were like four bodybuilders. And, uh, the guy's like, well, I need the two guys on the left. And that was warrior and sting. And they literally drove away in stings car in Venice. And, went to the South and, uh, you know, they were pretty green, you know, they, they didn't really have a lot of wrestling, uh, training. So, uh, a lot of guys in the early days didn't like wrestling with them because they were, uh, <laughs> you know, they were just these huge, strong guys who would hurt guys because they didn't really know what they were doing, but, uh, they didn't last too long. Cause, uh, you know, warriors are kind of headstrong guy and, uh, you know, sting was, uh, you know, a little bit more of a yes man. He was just happy to be there. And I think Warrior was like, no, I, I don't want to do that. I want to do this. And, you know, he'd argue with promoters and bookers. And so they uh, basically broke up not long after they, you know, started together. And, uh, you know, Warrior went off and became the Dingo Warrior and, and Sting stayed in the South and, uh, you know, went up through the ranks and, uh, you know, wrestled in the uh, United Wrestling Federation for a bit. And uh, then he went into the uh, 
what later became WCW when it was NWA. And uh, he just started uh, opening up for Jim Crockett's promotion. And, you know, he, you know, the story really tells itself, you know, started in matches, you know, partnering up with uh, the Freebirds, kind of. And, uh, you know, he was with uh, Michael PSAs and Jimmy Garvin and uh, against Gilbert uh steiner and larry zabisco and you know although he was probably the worst wrestler amongst those six guys he showed enough where it was uh like wow this guy's gonna be the next guy and uh you know he ended up being in the four horsemen and and got kicked out of there and then basically for the next 20 years became the face of uh wcw and uh you know, he and Ric Flair had just awesome matches, and and Flair really established him as the the good guy, and uh, you know, really made it easy for him to shine because you know Flair at that time anyway was quite the ring general, and he really was uh, responsible for you know making Sting look so good because even Sting at that point was still only had probably a couple years of, of wrestling uh, experience in him, and Flair probably had 20 at that time. So, uh, you know, and then it carried on into the 90s, and, uh, you know, Sting kind of disappeared for a little bit. Came back to fight Hogan in the in the mid-90s. Uh, actually, you know, more toward the late 90s, I guess 98. And then, unfortunately, uh, all good things must come to an end. And uh, WCW was bought out by WWE. And, uh, you know, a lot of guys went over to WWE. And uh, Sting was, like, really the only major guy who didn't. And uh, ended up, you know, a couple years later going to TNA and basically trying to do for TNA what he did with WCW and being the top face and... Uh, you know, TNA is just like, you know, if there's an analogy in the wrestling world and you 80s metal fans will really get this, uh, you know, the WWE is Cinderella and uh, TNA is Britney Fox, you know, just not quite the same. So, uh, you know, and a lot of guys had uh, gone over to the WWF, WWE at some points, you know, I mean, really everyone. Hogan went back and forth a few times. Flair went back and forth a few times. Rick Rude went back and forth a few times. Uh, I think the Steiners went back and forth a few times. Of course, many of the great WWE stars of, of today and the Attitude Era were uh, in WCW originally. And uh, just goes to show you how bad, uh, you know, the WWE uh, or WCW talent coordinator was. You know, kind of reminds me of a certain talent coordinator in the world of comedy who's now doing warm-up music at an open mic, uh, how the mighty have fallen. But when you think about it, you know, uh, The Undertaker was in WCW when he was uh, Mean Mark Calloway. You know, Steve Austin was stunning Steve Austin in the Hollywood Blondes. I think Triple H was actually originally uh, in WCW as, you know, kind of like a jobber type dude. Uh, um, you know, not Test, but Edge was uh, in... Uh, WCW, I think Christian was, uh, you know, Vader went back and forth a few times. Uh, so that's what made this Sunday at Survivor Series so special was Sting was literally the only guy to, and I don't know if this is the right uh, way to phrase it, but he was really the only one to thumb his nose at the WWE and uh, 
Vince McMahon and say, you know what? Uh, I'm not really into the uh, storylines you guys do, you know, because he was, uh, is a reborn Christian, so I don't think he uh, really had any desire to be in uh, a brawn panties match with Hornswoggle or uh, something like that. And I also think he was, uh, you know, concerned with, you know, I think it's fairly common knowledge that uh, Vince McMahon liked to kind of bury the WCW guys. You know, I think uh, he really went out of his way to kind of make them look bad. And, uh, you know, like Booker T, uh, and I think Sting alludes to this. Uh, you know, Booker T was is was a great wrestler, is a great character. Uh, but in Booker T's debut, you know, he, he kind of comes out. crowd, you know, obviously knew who he was because at that time, you know, WCW and WWE, you know, they had a great, you know, two, three year battle for ratings. And, and so fans knew who both rosters were. And, uh, you know, The Rock comes out and basically looks at Booker T and goes, who are you? So literally within, you know, two minutes, The Rock totally buried uh, Booker T. And, and that's why you saw Booker T in like so many comedy sketches because his real wrestling skills were kind of shit on instantly and i i don't blame the rock for that it was I'm sure he was just going on uh, vince mcmahon's orders and uh i think sting saw that and was like i'm not going over there to be jobbed out to triple h or you know randy orton or you know whoever they would have put him up against and in a way that's too bad because you think you know i mean if you saw sting walk out the survivor series uh you know, he, he had the uh, turning radius of the Titanic. He was moving so slow. Uh, but it was still cool to see. And, uh, you know, it was a great stare down between him and Triple H. But you think, wow, what if that happened 10 years ago? Like, you know, what if Sting could have taken on Evolution? You know, what if Sting could have gone up against, uh, you know, CM Punk and, you know, Triple H from 10 years ago? Because it's, you know, I think now everyone's kind of going, okay. He kind of turned on the authority and you know who's he going to go up against and i think common knowledge or uh, common logic i guess whatever you want to call it would be like well him and the undertaker you know everyone's always wanted to see that match you know because their characters are somewhat similar you know the kind of the goth you know dark you know mysterious vibe and and you think that match at wrestlemania in california where sting is from although it's northern california I mean, Sting was from Southern California. Would be pretty cool to see at WrestleMania. Um, but, you know, I, I have, uh, you know, weird thoughts on that. I, I You know, let's be honest, you know, both guys have a lot of ring rare, ring rare, ring wear. And, uh, you know, I think you need to put Sting in there with someone who could take the bumps. And, and Sting can kind of do what Flair did for him, be the ring general. You know, I, I think a guy like Bray Wyatt would be great. Because Bray Wyatt kind of reminds me of a young Undertaker, you know, with the mysteriousness and the, I wouldn't say goth character, but, you know, that weird, you know, speak in tongues type promos he does. I think the the entrances could be pretty cool. And, uh, you know, if you've seen Bray Wyatt, he's, he's the future star. I mean, he's like the next Undertaker. Um, great in-ring uh, ability and very good on the mic. And uh, I think that that would be who I would want to see. Because, you know, Sting could, you know, do his basic moves. I mean, you know, really, when you think about it, each wrestler 
has like three to five basic moves. And it really all depends on the bumps that those moves bring on that, you know, makes the match good or not. You know, I mean, in Stank's case, he's got the Scorpion Death Drop. He's got the Scorpion Death Lock, which is kind of a modified version of Bret Hart's Sharpshooter. I don't know who took it from who, but it's basically the same move. And then he's got the uh, modified Flare Chop he does. And then he's got the... Uh, move where he throws you into the turnbuckle and jumps on you uh, and does a modified flare woo. So, uh, you know, I think Wyatt would sell all those moves. I, I think Triple H would too, but, you know, Triple H isn't the most nimble of guys uh, anymore either, although he certainly physically uh, is incredibly strong. I saw a uh, workout video of him recently uh, doing 120-pound uh, dumbbell chest presses, and he literally did like 25. And, you know, I'm a pretty strong guy. You know, my max is eight. <laughs> and I think we're around the same age. So uh, maybe I'm not as strong as I thought I would be. Notice how I get my, get myself into the conversation because that's how much of an attention whore I am. Uh, another guy I'd like to see Sting go up against is Randy Orton because I think he's got a great uh, gimmick or he had a great gimmick, you know, a couple of years ago with the Legend Killer. I can't believe I bought a Legend Killer t-shirt, you know, in my 40s buying wrestling t-shirts. Um, I might as well just buy a white t-shirt and put fucking loser on it. Same thing. That's why uh, a couple months ago I gave all my uh, MMA shirts to homeless people. I figure, well, their life can't get any worse. I'll put an affliction shirt on them just to test it out. So if you ever are in Los Angeles and you see a homeless guy with a $100 affliction shirt with a dragon on the back, uh, that's probably my shirt. So, uh, But Orton would be great because, you know, I, I think you could kind of reintroduce that legend killer gimmick, you know, and then Sting drops down from the rafters during an Orton promo and says, you may have beaten this guy, this guy, and this guy, but you did beat me. And I think Orton would, uh, you know, sell all those moves like Bray Wyatt would. And, uh, you know, I, I think you got to have Sting win. That's the thing. I don't think Sting, uh, and I'm assuming he has pretty good creative control in his, uh, contract he's not going to come into job to a wwe guy uh and you know i i think that you know a guy like orton who's going to be around the next 10 years certainly bray wyatt's probably if he's healthy going to be around the next 15 to 20 years you know they would do the job for staying and then you put staying in the hall of fame and that's it so uh or, or you know and i think another one that's a real long shot because I, I don't think personally he'll ever be in the WWE again because I, I think he's pretty happy not being under the WWE uh, umbrella and the, and the crazy schedule that they do is a CM Punk. I mean, that would be a great match. CM Punk and Sting. Uh, you know, you talk about a guy who would sell all of Sting's moves. I think CM Punk would do it because I think Sting's a pretty uh, respected guy in the WWE locker room, even though he's, you know, never been in it. Up until now, I think, uh, I don't think anyone would admit to this publicly, but they're probably like, you know, yeah, you stuck at the Vince McMahon for 30 years, never, uh, you know, buckled under his, I'm sure, was what were pretty nice offers and, and said thanks, but no thanks. Kind of like how Fedor uh, is really the only guy to stick it to the UFC and say, no thanks, I don't need your money. I mean, I think they offered Fedor $5 million uh, for one fight with Brock Lesnar. I mean, that's the rumor anyway. And he said, well, I also want this, this, and that. At least his management team did. And 
I think Dana White told him to suck it uh, to coin a wrestling phase. By the way, I, I was saying suck it long before Vince McMahon and Triple H, so there might be a pending lawsuit there, but uh, you know, we don't want to track down the momentum of this show. <laughs> so that's really, uh, you know, the whole situation with Sting, and uh, you know, now it's, uh, you know, he didn't appear on Raw this week, so it, it's kind of up in the air in terms of, uh, you know, where he'll appear next. Uh, you know, to show you how long it's been since I've ordered pay-per-views, uh, I don't know. Uh, I'm not really familiar with the, the WWE pay-per-views in between Survivor Series and uh, WrestleMania. So, uh, you know, I'm assuming he's not going to appear too much on TV. Uh, there'll probably maybe a little vignettes, maybe one or two appearances on raw have him up in the rafters i think it's cool if he doesn't say anything and sting's very good on the mic but i think you know what made his uh, wcw crow character so good was he didn't really talk you know like that my favorite uh you know youtube clip i'm obsessed with this youtube clip uh is when bischoff is in the ring cutting a great heel promo and sting comes up from uh under the ring and delivers a real hard scorpion death drop on him. And instead of taking the mic and cutting a heel promo, he just looks into the camera like a lost soul. And uh, that really uh, was a great character. Might be the last, other than Goldberg, uh, might be the only uh, good WCW character. So, uh, you know, they really dropped the ball on so many things. And you'd think with Ted Turner's billions, I mean, Ted Turner shits out in a week what Vince McMahon's worth. Uh, which just goes to show you, you know, money's not the only thing uh, that you need to go up against the WWE. You know, uh, I've always said that you need um, four things to compete against the WWE. You need uh, a short-term plan, a mid-term plan, a long-term plan, and you need the money to carry out all these things. And uh, I think WCW had uh, three of them. Uh, you know, the short-term plan was, you know, before the Monday Night Wars, you signed the older popular stars when their contracts were up. You know, the Macho Mans, the Hogans, the Flares, the Halls, the Nashes. You know, uh, the midterm plan was, you know, the NWO, which is, is probably the greatest uh, angle, at least in the beginning, in pro wrestling history. I mean, you know, when Hogan turned heel... Uh, at Bash at the Beach, uh, that was like wrestling 9-11. I mean, when that second leg drop hit Savage, I was like watching the second plane hit the tower. And, uh, you know, the first couple months, maybe you can even say the first you know, seven to eight months was great. And then they started adding members and totally watered it down. I mean, you knew when uh, Scott Norton and fucking, you know, guys like Virgil and Horace Hogan were in the NWO, it was like, wow. It was like kissing the you know, mid-80s when they just started changing guitar players every album, which we'll break down in a few moments, by the way. Uh, trying to wrap up this Sting conversation. But, uh, you know, it's a good time to be a wrestling fan, and uh, hopefully the WWE doesn't mess this up too much, you know, because this is, you know, bringing in Sting to me is like the last what-the-fuck moment that you can give uh, older wrestling fans like myself uh, something to, you know, grab onto and hold because, uh, you know, there's really no one left to bring in. You're, you're certainly not going to bring Macho Man in. Uh, and he, even if he was alive, I don't think they'd bring him in because of the 
you know, situation uh, allegedly that happened many, many, many years ago with uh, a very young Stephanie McMahon. I mean, I don't think I have to repeat that story. If you're a wrestling fan, you know what it is. And uh, if you're not, uh, just a long story short is, you know, Macho Man's one of the most iconic um, wrestlers ever. I mean, you know, there's very few guys who you can go up to a non-wrestling fan and, and say their name and they'll know who it is. And just through the Slim Jim commercials, yeah, uh, you know, he's known to most non-wrestling fans. You know, Hulk Hogan, obviously known to non-wrestling fans. The Rock, uh, you know, maybe Steve Austin to a degree. Um, but, you know, most popular wrestlers are just confined to wrestling fans' knowledge. So it's quite a, you know, although Batista, I think, uh, is really killing it in uh so I think Guardians of the Galaxy, or I might be off in the movie, but uh, he's uh, possibly the next wrestler to cross over. I think he's not going to try MMA anymore because I I don't I don't think some of these guys you know they see the MMA schedules a lot lax uh, or more uh, easier than a pro wrestling schedule, but uh, you're also getting hit for real in MMA. So I think a lot of these guys do it, and like you I know mean, I'm not really into this. I'd rather be in a brawn panties match with Hornswoggle. See, that's what they call a callback in the world of comedy. So uh, hopefully uh, we'll see Sting at WrestleMania this year. I know a lot of stand-up comics from L.A. or uh, uh, myself included. Uh, Tony Hinchcliffe, Matt Edgar uh, uh, are uh, planning on uh, doing a comedy show around uh, WrestleMania up in Northern California and then taking the festivities. Uh, my only condition to those boys were uh, Sting has to... Uh, be on the table for that one. And he is. So I, I hope, uh, you know, I've never gotten to see Sting uh, wrestle live. And uh, I think I'm going to go on WWE.com. Here I'm plugging uh, something else I don't get paid for. And uh, I might just buy a Sting t-shirt after uh, hopefully this podcast is recording. And, uh, you know, that's it for the first subject. Sting Survivor Series. It was very cool. And... Uh, I thought we are at right now the uh, we are at the thirty minute mark, so I'm gonna try and make this around an hour podcast. And uh, as many of you know, my uh, two favorite bands of all time are uh, Rat and Kiss. Of course, I've liked Kiss for so long. Um, I mean, literally since I've been in uh, second grade. I mean, uh, I remember the first kiss album i really got behind was love gun and uh you know this goes to show you the naivety of uh you know my youth i thought that love gun was a song about a water pistol so uh you know and then uh, many years later i was in concert uh, at a kiss concert kiss winger and slaughter 1990 long beach arena and uh you know, Paul Stanley's introing the song to Love Gun and he talks about he's at the doctor's office and the nurse sticks his hand down his pants and says, Mr. Stanley, how did you uh, get that rifle into this country? And he's like, honey, that ain't no rifle. That's my love gun. And I literally will never forget. I started looking up at the ceiling going, oh, my God, that song's about his dick. So uh, there you go. Uh, but uh, what I wanted to do was uh, talk about Kiss's uh, album catalog in the uh, 1980s because I think uh, 
You know, the 80s for Kiss was uh, really a fascinating time for them. Um, you know, they were the biggest band in the world by far in the, uh, I would say from like 77 to 80. Um, I mean, maybe the greatest three-year run of any band in America anyway. Uh, you know, they were big in certain other parts of the world, but in America, they were like the Beatles, uh, popularity-wise. I mean, you know, kind of like wrestling when, you know, non-fans know who Hulk Hogan is and The Rock, you know, you could go to non-Kiss fans and say, Peter and Ace, they're like, oh, those are the, that's a drummer and guitar player from Kiss. I mean, Gene, Paul, Ace, and Peter were everywhere in, the, in that three-year run. And, uh, you know, you really have to admire Kiss for their longevity and uh, their persistence. I mean, you could really get like a Tony Robbins type of motivation uh, from the band Kiss, no matter what you do in life, uh, because their first three albums uh, did not sell very well. Um, and they were with Casablanca Records under the amazing music genius of uh, Neil Bogart. I think Kiss's manager, Bill Coin. They they were really the brains of Kiss. And, uh, you know, they were just on the road constantly. Uh, you know, the first album didn't sell that great. They put out a second album right away. Second album didn't sell that great. They put out a third album. And, uh, you know, I think uh, in the offices of Casablanca Records, uh, which also had Donna Summer, The Village People, Parliament, uh, you know, the fourth album was like the essential long bomb Hail Mary pass. And it was like, well, we got one more crack. Let's put out a live album. And, uh, you know, Kiss has always been a live band. Uh, you know, I always tell people that, you know, Kiss is like uh, the NHL. You know, you could watch a hockey game on TV. You could listen to a Kiss album. And on either one, you're like, man, eh, this is okay. But then you see a hockey game live or you see Kiss play the same songs you thought were just okay on CD. And you're like, this is the greatest band I've ever seen. Wow, this is the greatest sport I've ever seen. Because there's just something about Kiss live that just defies, uh, you know, all logic. I mean, Kiss might be the worst band to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But then you get it because... You know, you see them live and, you know, the drum kit rising to the uh, concert hall ceiling, it, you know, lasers shooting out of the guitar, Paul flying over the audience on Love Gun, uh, Gene spitting up blood, you know, raising to the roof again like the drum riser and God of Thunder. And it hit me that Kiss does everything humanly possible to distract you from how bad their music is. And it worked because I'm the biggest Kiss fan in the world. I know right now with what I just said, it probably seems like I'm a hater, but I'm anything but a Kiss hater. Those guys are great. Uh, they are still relevant from a concert uh, attendance, uh, you know, situation 40 years after they started, uh, you know, numerous lineup changes, which is why I want to talk about the 80s because it's really a fascinating time. Um you know, because in 79, they uh, put out a, essentially what amounted to a, a disco record in Dynasty. And that's where the chinks in the armor were starting to appear with Kiss because, uh, you know, Ace and, uh, you know, Peter were kind of disgruntled around that time. You know, I think Kiss has always been uh, a Gene and Paul type band. And, uh, you know, even though it was a democracy back then, you know, I think Ace and Peter wanted to be a little more upfront in the uh, 
direction of the band was going in. And, you know, it's, it's funny, you know, those four guys in Kiss probably never should have been as successful, successful as they are. Because, you know, Gene and Paul are more, you know, structured, anal retentive uh, musicians. And I think Peter and Ace were always kind of just, hey, fuck it, let's just go in the studio and jam and flesh it out. So, uh, and, you know, Peter really wasn't a good, you know, fit for the band musically. He, he came more from a jazz drumming background. You know, I think his favorite drummer uh, was Gene Krupa, Buddy Rich, you know, and, and Ace, I think, had, uh, you know, kind of fallen into Jimmy Page, you know, footsteps and, you know, Gene and Paul were like very structured. We're going to do this song. We're going to play this chord here. We're going to do this chorus here. So, uh, but somehow the forehead, you know, it's like being with a girl, you know, is wrong for you. Uh, you know, I've certainly been there. Uh, you know, it just works for whatever reason. And then you end up marrying them and, and uh, killing her like OJ did, allegedly. I mean, it's true. You know, his blood was everywhere, but in his own body that night. But uh, you know, it's possible Nicole and Ron could have committed suicide. I'm still looking into that. I got some friends on the L.A. Uh, beat. So, you know, 79, uh, a lot of people don't know this. You know, uh, Peter Chris didn't even drum on Dynasty. It was uh, actually uh, on Dynasty and Unmasked, the David Letterman drummer, the great Anton Fig, who uh, drummed on several Ace Frehley uh, solo albums in the 80s. Uh, he was a drummer in Kiss. And this started, you know, Kiss, you know, Kiss has never been known as a, a leader. You know, they've always kind of loosely uh, borrowed, ripped off, whatever you want to say, uh, copied from other people. I mean, even, you know, the makeup and stuff was, you know, I would say uh, borrowed from Alice Cooper, the New York Dolls. Uh, they just took it to another level. I mean, that's what Kiss is good at. You know, they'll take an idea of someone else's and just amp it up times 10. And uh, I'm sure Neil Bogart and, uh, you know, Bill Coin were like, guys, you know, Alice Cooper and the Dolls are popular, but if we did this instead of this, we could take you guys to the next level. And they did. I mean, and I mean, Casablanca Records, you know, people forget, you know, not only was Kiss a huge band in the late 70s, but the Village people uh, were uh, maybe... Uh, only second behind Kiss in terms of popularity for a brief period of time. I mean, you know, they were a legendary disco band. Uh, and they, their bill of coin, Neil Bogart, was a Giorgio Moroder who wrote the songs and guided them, you, you know, and they, and they were, you know, only one of them was gay in real life. You know, that's the great thing, you know. Uh, it's like, wow, I would love to hire the acting coach of those other five guys because... That guy was on point. And then when I tell people that, they're like, well, Earl, which one was gay? You know, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it was the guy who died of AIDS. But, uh, you know, it's just a hunch. You know, many of you know me. I'm not the smartest cat in the world. So the 80s are here. You know, there's uh, Peter Chris Leaves. You know, was replaced by Eric Carr. This is, uh, you know, although Peter Chris was on the cover of Dynasty Unmasked, you know, that was just for appearance. Um, you know, and Unmasked is actually a really good album. It's very poppy, a lot of keyboards. It it kind of, if you close your eyes, it sounds like the Cars, who are probably my third favorite band of all time. I love me some Rick Ocasek and Benjamin Orr. Um, hell, I even like the new Cars with Todd Rundgren singing. And uh, But Unmasked was, you know, featured uh, Greg Hawks type keyboards. It certainly wasn't Greg Hawks, but, uh, you know, a lot of ghost musicians on that album. Uh, you know, uh, 
but it, it's kind of a guilty pleasure of mine to pop in unmasked every now and then. Uh, but uh, after that album was released, uh, Cat was out of the bag, you know, literally. The Cat was out of the band. Uh, and uh, Peter Chris was replaced with uh, Eric Carr, who was probably a better fit for Kiss anyway. You know, he's a power drummer, you know, kind of a, a Bonham-esque type feel. And uh, one of my favorite Kiss clips to watch on YouTube is when they debuted Eric Carr on that kids show, Kids Are People Too, you know, which was uh, all kids in the audience and a pretty funny host. And uh, long story short, uh, you know, Gene, Paul and Ace go out there, you know, a little bit of an interview and then uh, they bring out Eric Carr. And, uh, you know, this shows you the greatness of kids and how kids just don't care. And um, uh, they send the guy out in the crowd that, you know, ask Gene, Paul and Ace questions, you know, and uh, every kid's asking where Peter Chris is and how their favorite band member is Peter Chris. And you could just tell Gene and Paul going, oh, fuck. Um, but Eric Carr was great. You know, he, he made Kiss in the 80s what they were, you know. Uh, and then uh, after Unmasked, which, you know, I wouldn't say bombed, but it, it definitely didn't have the sales of uh, their previous albums, you know. I think probably under Gene and Paul's uh, direction, uh, you know, they put out an album, uh, and this goes to, you know, Kiss trying to sound like the Cars. You know, now Kiss was trying to do a concept album that uh, was just a bad concept uh, called The Elder, which was, uh, I think, Kiss trying to do uh, Pink Floyd's The Wall. And actually, there's a lot of good songs on The Elder, but it just... You know, I think this was Kiss, you know, Kiss's insecurities coming out. You know, I think this was Paul and Gene saying we want to be, uh, you know, seen as serious musicians. And, uh, you know, they created this album that told the story from the first song to the last song, kind of like Pink Floyd's The Wall. And, uh, you know, it bombed. Uh, you know, I think Kiss looks at the elders like Tom Cruise looks at losing it. You know, you just don't want to talk about it. And, uh, you know, but there is uh, some great TV uh, appearances uh, when they were promoting the album. They didn't tour for The Elder. It was such a, you know, disastrous effort from beginning to end that, uh, you know, they did a few TV shows. And uh, they were on that uh, show Fridays, which was uh, basically Saturday Night Live's competition back then. And if you, if you are familiar with Fridays, it uh, had a very young Michael Richards on it you know, before uh, the racism creeped in. Actually, a pretty funny guy. And uh, they also had uh, one of my favorite cast members on Fridays, is familiar to KISS fans, uh, Mark Blankfield, who uh, was the interviewer in the first KISS home video exposed. And he was really funny. And uh, I think they did two or three songs. And, uh, you know, there was a session uh, drummer on uh, The Elder, uh, very uh, legendary Alan Schwartzberg, who uh, drummed on I, which is one of my favorite songs on uh, The Elder. I guess Eric Carr didn't have the groove for the song, and they brought him in. And, uh, you know, this started, especially with the next album, Creatures of the Night, you really saw a pattern here with the, you know, there were more ghost musicians on Kiss albums in the 80s in a haunted house because, uh, you know, this was a uh, big turning point for Kiss. I think they were kind of scared, you know, and Mass hadn't done well. The Elder was a complete bomb by uh, anyone's standards. And uh, so I think they thought, well, we'll go to our roots. No, I don't mean LeVar Burton. Uh, we got this new power drummer in the band. And, and by now, Eric Carr had, you know, had his feet wet. And uh, they decided to uh, do, a, a, I guess what you'd say, a classic rock album, Creatures of the Night. 
And it was, once again, you know, very good album. Uh, I think an underrated Kiss album, uh, but uh, kind of poor sales for this album. And uh, this album was, I think, the introduction of Vinnie Vincent to Kiss, as he wrote uh, three or four songs, I believe, on it. And, uh, you know, played on uh, three or four songs. Uh, and this album is probably... Uh, has the most guest guitarists on any Kiss album because you had uh, Steve Ferris from Mr. Mister on a few songs. I think you had, uh, you know, Vinnie Vincent on a few songs uh, and uh, two or three other uh, studio guitar players uh, on and various songs. Uh, you know, even on the Kiss box set, you know, I think Gene and Paul were unsure of who, who should be credited on uh, <laughs> the album uh, in terms of playing on each song. And, uh, you know, uh, I think this is uh, the first album uh, that Eric Carr drummed completely on. And, uh, you know, great sounding drums on this album. And, uh, you know, it, it really showcased Eric Carr's uh, ability. But it didn't really sell that well. So uh, this is... Uh, but they had Hugh... And Ace Frehley was now uh, completely out of the band at this point. He did not play a note on Creatures of the Night. And I think Kiss, you know, they had, uh, it's very famous about to uh, audition for Kiss at this time. Um, you know, I think Robin Crosby from Rat, uh, Richie Sambora, um, Steve Ferris from Mr. Mister. I think uh, Rumors was uh, Punky Meadows as well. And uh, probably every guitar player in town. Um, and uh, the gig went to Vinnie Vincent. I think by default, uh, I think Vinnie was kind of a, you know, weird uh, dude, uh, and obviously, by the way he's uh, acted, um, you know, since then, uh, Gene and Paul might have been right on that, but, you know, the rub with Vinny is that he's a brilliant guitar player uh, for this genre of music, and uh, uh, a, gr a great songwriter, once again, for this genre of music, and, uh, you know, he kind of got the gig just by, like, you know, I don't think Gene and Paul were really happy with uh, what they were seeing. And uh, it was like, well, we got to put out another album, dude. You're in. You got the gig. So, uh, you know, they did, uh, you know, I think Vinny did only about 60 shows in makeup. Uh, but he had the coolest makeup, I thought, of any Kiss member uh, ever. Um, he, had, he was the Egyptian warrior, and he had a really cool gold, uh, silver, or whatever it was, onk on it and uh probably my favorite kiss uh concert out there is uh, their last concert in makeup in rio and uh the energy that that uh band showed was just really unbelievable um you know if you uh youtube kiss uh, rio de janeiro creatures of the night um it's just gene you'll never see gene with that much energy paul is uh dancing and, and singing his ass off uh Vinny's, you know giving uh i guess what you'd say his version of uh, aces solos which a lot of classic kiss fans didn't like i personally did but you know i'm more of an 80s guy than 70s guy in terms of my music taste so and you know i think the uh you know the sad thing is i i don't think ace could have played in kiss in the 80s because uh and you know this is where you know, this is the, one of the few problems I have with Gene and Paul. You know, they always shit on Vinnie Vincent and Mark St. John, who was after Vinnie. Uh, 
about how they, you know, play a million notes a second, but, you know, it didn't sound good. But, you know, that's what the 80s was, frankly. I mean, the 80s was, uh, you know, ushered in <coughs> by, uh, you know, obviously Eddie Van Halen and then Randy Rhodes. And unfortunately, Randy Rhodes died. And, but then, you know, it was the torch was carried by guys like Jake E. Lee, George Lynch, you know, KK uh, Downing, Glenn. Tipton of Judas Priest, you know, uh, one of my favorite guitar players of all time, Steve Stevens, Billy Idol. So I, I don't think Ace could could do stuff like that, um, you know, at least uh, with a, a degree of uh, credibility, um, you know, because if you heard Ace play the 80s songs on the reunion tour, it just wasn't there. And, uh, you know, I'm not a musician. And even I knew it was like, wow, that doesn't sound like, you know, what it sounded like back then. So, uh, you know, it was... Uh, just uh and you know there's also a couple ghost bass players on creatures of the night you know uh actually uh you know mike percaro of toto uh played bass on creatures of the night and uh, jimmy haslip uh, i think from aerosmith or no uh creature uh cheap trick or aerosmith I, I forget you know you guys can correct me on that um he played on danger so uh you know, just uh, and now Robin Ford was on uh, guitar as well. So, uh, you know, I, I think Kiss really went all in on uh, just getting everyone on that album, trying to make it sound relevant. And, uh, you know, it, it holds up to this day, to be honest with you, but it just different era. And then uh, they did the big move of uh, taking off the makeup. And I think that was like you talk about a Hail Mary pass. It was like, all right, makeup's getting old, you know even though there had been many pictures of Kiss unmasked. Uh, I think, you know, now that Ace and Peter were out there and, and everyone knew what they looked like, uh, you know, it didn't have the the panache if they did it years earlier with Ace and Peter, but uh, it was still kind of cool on MTV when uh, Triple J, Jimmy James Jackson, J.J. Uh, Jackson, as they call him, uh, had the very famous uh, debuting uh, of Kiss Without Makeup. And, uh, boy, when that camera panned from left or right you're like jesus christ they better put the makeup back on that looked like a amber alert lineup and uh you know the vinnie vincent era of kiss was completely underway because the next album was lick it up where vinnie co-wrote uh eight of the ten songs and uh you know it's kind of essentially a uh you know a vinnie vincent solo record um you know because this is uh where gene i think started um you know, doing the acting thing and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, Paul was kind of like guiding the uh, kiss ship at that point, which I think would later on cause friction uh, with him and Gene. I think Paul had the attitude of, uh, especially around the crazy nights era of, hey, man, you know, I'm working my ass off here. You're making these shitty movies and appearing on Miami Vice, which is one of my favorite episodes, uh, Prodigal Son, by the way, for those of you uh, wanting to... Uh, watched out on Miami Vice. Um, and, you know, you're still reaping the, the benefits. And, you know, at this point, you know, uh, Round Lick It Up, certainly uh, animalized and, and really throughout the rest of Kiss's career, Kiss was now, in terms of a voting situation, Gene and Paul. And uh, obviously, Vinny had no vote, which I think led to the reason why he wanted out of the band as fast as he did. Um, Eric Carr had little to no say in what was going on, which I think down the road, probably after crazy nights, you know, led to his uh, displeasure in the band. Um, 
And, uh, you know, really anyone who's been in KISS ever since Ace and Peter left was, you know, basically a hired gun. You know, I think the only guy who really had a legitimate claim to, hey, man, I want to be, a, you know, a full member was Vinny because he was writing all the songs and co-writing all the songs. You know, he was coming up with some very memorable leads. I mean, you know, Lick It Up's a great song to this day. And, uh, you know, the guitar playing on Lick It Up is top notch. Um, but, you know, Vinny was such a maniac. He, he essentially was in Kiss from like, I don't know, sometime, you know, unofficially in mid-82 to, you know, maybe the end of 83. He was kicked out of Kiss like three times, but they kept bringing him back because, you know, they, you know, he, he was good. Uh, but then they finally had enough and uh, they brought in, uh, you know, almost a, a cult figure in the in the world of Kiss, uh, Mark Norman, better known as Mark St. John. And uh, he was literally in Kiss for nine months, uh, recorded Animalized, which uh, is probably my favorite guitar sounding Kiss album. A lot of uh, classic Kiss fans would have a heart attack if they heard me say that. But uh, I just really loved uh you know, he played on every song but Lonely is the Hunter, which uh, Bruce Kulick was on, who would be his eventual replacement. Uh, one of the, probably the rarest Kiss bootlegs is the bootleg where uh, Gene Paul, uh, Eric Carr, Mark St. John, and Bruce Kulick uh, played uh, as a five-man. Uh, I think they, uh, Bruce and Mark would switched off at various points of the concert, and then they played like the last song together or something. Uh, it's a very uh, any Mark St. John uh, live concert footage is very rare because I think he played like a uh, one full concert and a half of two other concerts. So it, it's that's probably one of the more requested Kiss bootlegs. And uh, you know, allegedly Mark uh, got Rider syndrome, which is a arthritic condition of the hands, and uh, you know he, he couldn't play anymore. Uh, so you know they recruited. Uh, uh, a member of the Kiss family, uh, Bruce, uh, Bob Kulik's brother, Bruce Kulik. And, uh, you know, that's, you know, it all, always was weird to me because it's like, well, if that was the real reason that uh, Mark St. John left the band, why was he in a band a year later touring? And uh, White Lion. No, I'm sorry, White Tiger. White Tiger. My bad, my bad. White Tiger. Um, I try and be factual on this podcast. And, uh, you know, I, I personally think, uh, you know, and I have no inside info on this, but I, I think the real reason that he was, um, his tenure in Kiss was so short. Was he? He was actually just too good of a player, and he was too flashy. And uh, you know, it's, it's been often said he can never play the same note twice, which is probably true. And if you know Gene and Paul, that's not going to fly, you know. And that's why I think Bruce Kulick is the was the perfect guitar player to take over because you know he's and I mean this as a compliment, not an insult, but he's he's uh, a yes man. You know, you tell him what to do, he'll do it. Uh, very proficiently and that's what gene and paul wanted you know i don't think bruce was ever going to say well i want to write eight songs on the next album and i want my solos to be this and that you know and that's what Vinny was saying he's like well listen i'm sure after lick it up was a success then he probably had an attitude of listen i wrote eight out of the ten songs the guitar playing's great i'm not a hired gun i want to be a full member and uh Gene and Paul were probably like, hey, suck it. We'll just get someone else who can play like you. And, you know, Mark St. John and Vinny are fairly similar players, that 80 shred style. And, uh, you know, Gene and Paul might have been right ultimately on Vinny because, uh, you know, a couple of years later, Vin, you know, Vinny famously formed the Vinny Vincent Invasion, 
and uh, that that's a whole other podcast. And uh, the guys from Decibel Geek uh, can do a much better job at breaking down uh, Vinnie Vincent uh, than I do or can. And that's a Decibel Geek podcast. They, they, those guys are great. And, uh, you know, they've had several episodes uh, where they interview, uh, like, Robert Fleischman, the first singer of the Vinnie Vincent Invasion, who was actually uh, the first singer in Journey, if you can believe that or not. And, uh, but, you know, Vinnie must have been crazy because, you know, Vinnie Vincent Invasion, uh, two years later, kicked Vinnie Vincent out, which is insane. I mean, that, that doesn't seem like it's possible. If your name is in the band, I think you should, you know, be the last man standing. And then, you know, we all know Vinnie's, uh, you know, history after that, uh, sporadic at best. And I, I'm actually one of the ones who bought the Vinnie Vincent box set on cassette, which, you know, shows you how smart I am. Um, and uh, I got the box set and there was nothing in it. So uh, I'm trying to fund a documentary right now, uh, hopefully through uh, Russell Peters, where, uh, you know, we track down Vinny and I get my six cassettes because uh, I'm out a hundred bucks. But, uh, you know, and this is where we kind of go into a uh, probably the darkest era for Kiss because, you know, Mark St. John leaves and, you know, uh, you know, under a cloud, let's just say, of uh, whatever. And then uh, their next album is Asylum, and uh, which did well. You know, Tears Are Falling, uh, you know, it was a big video on uh, MTV and a big hit. Uh, they didn't really have a follow-up, you know. I don't know if uh, all night, although it's a great video, uh, you know, that kind of panned out. And Who Wants to Be Lonely, great video. But this is, you know, when Kiss was, uh, all of them were looking like B. Arthur. I mean, they made Ozzy's ultimate sin look, look normal. Uh, and they, you know, they were also riding again with Desmond Child. You know, they brought him back into the fold on Animal Eyes. And uh, they had a great, you know, Paul and him just, you know, they had a great chemistry, among other things, from what I understand. Uh, you know, because they also uh, brought him on the next album, Crazy Nights. And, uh, you know, Desmond can just write those power, pop, sugary ballads. And uh, that's what was in at that time, you know. And, uh, you know, because I think, uh, you know, the writing was on the wall for, you know, and this goes once again to, you know, Kiss trying to glob on to the next big thing, you know, which was, you know, the Bon Jovis and Def Leppards of the world, you know. Certainly the next year uh, after Asylum, I think uh, Slippery When Wet was released. And, you know, Desmond co-wrote most of the hits on Slippery When Wet for Bon Jovi. And uh, Def Leppard was blowing up. So the next Kiss album was uh, Crazy Nights. And, uh, you know, once again, they brought in, you know, uh, Desmond Child. And I think Diane Warren wrote a song, Holly Knight, as well. And, uh, you know, they used, uh, you know, they waited a while between asylum and crazy nights because they were wanting to work with uh, ron nevison who was a legendary uh producer he'd worked with led zeppelin and, and many other uh you know rock and roll hall of fame acts but they really wanted him because he was the man behind the resurgence of uh hart's career you know hart was a 70s you know a band with the wilson sisters and uh you know they were great and uh you know but they you know like a lot of 70s acts kind of struggled in the 80s with the modernizing their sound you know they bands like boston you know huge these huge you know crazy huge 70s acts were just kind of swallowed up alive by the new sound i mean uh, i don't think uh hart was going to do like eddie van halen you know jakey lee finger tapping type songs so uh they were hurting 
uh, almost on the verge of extinction. And then uh, Ron Nevison, uh, through his uh, studio process, uh, reinvented them. And I think Kiss thought, well, this is the guy we got to go to, to, you know, along with Desmond Child and, and, and uh, some of the other outside songwriters. This is the, you know, this is what we got to do to basically be an older version of Bon Jovi. And, uh, you know, Crazy Nights was, I think, their attempt at Slippery When Wet. And, uh, you know, uh, the videos were uh, big hits on MTV. You know, Turn On The Night, Reason To Live, Crazy Nights, all on, uh, I think it was Dial MTV Live or uh, or whatever that show was. You know, I mean, Turn On The Night seemed like it was on every hour. And, uh, you know, it, it it went platinum, but it, it you know, you know, platinum in the 80s, you know, really wasn't that big of a deal. Um, you know, I think uh, Slippery When Wet ended up selling you know, 10 million records or something and Def Leppard's, you know, hysteria, the same thing. So, you know, when you're comparing 10 million to 1 million, it was like, uh Oh, and, uh, this was, you know, the tour wasn't doing that well. I think they were out with anthrax and, uh, cause anthrax was getting, you know, blowing up. Um, but you know, you know, Gene and Paul had to be freaking out that, you know, bringing in Ron Nevison, uh, bringing in Desmond child, you know, Holly Knight, Diane Warren, it just, kind of worked but it didn't it's like you know you take a girl out spend all this money on her and you get a you know a kiss on the lips is it a total failure no but it, it's not you know boning for six hours uh, you know back at your pad either and uh you know one song that was actually left off of uh, crazy nights is, is one of my favorite kiss songs uh kind of surprised they didn't put it on the box that years later was the uh, sword and stone which uh the German band Bonfire actually recorded for the Shocker soundtrack, which uh, Shocker is kind of like the movie version of Crazy Nights where it wasn't a complete bomb. You know, it was a Wes Craven's follow-up uh, attempt to create a, a new uh, Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. Uh, and uh, Mitch Pelegi is one of my favorite actors, uh, character actor, I guess you'd say. Although I don't know if the... That's insulting to call someone because he's really a very good actor. Uh, he played the bad guy, Horace Pinker. It was a Freddy Krueger-like character. And uh, the whole Shocker soundtrack was, I think, produced by Desmond Child uh, under the name Sir Arthur Payson. <coughs> and uh, the song, the song, the song uh, Shocker is really, it's it's not a Kiss song, but it's, it's, it's a duo between uh, Paul Stanley and Desmond Child, and you've got Tommy Lee on drums. Uh, I think uh, Michael Anthony from Van Halen on bass, and I think Vivian Campbell was on it. And the whole soundtrack was great. You know, Alice Cooper's on it, Megadeth. And uh, the great thing about Shockers, it's the acting debut of uh, Alice Cooper's uh, uh, guitar player, the great Kane Roberts. So, uh, you know, that was after Crazy Nights. Uh, but Sword and Stone was uh, on that uh album uh by bonfire and it was good they, they did a good version of, but if you go on youtube there's a really high def uh, quality uh version of uh kisses uh version of sword and stone and uh i'm not saying if it was put on crazy nights they would have sold 10 million uh, records like bon jovi but uh you know just an interesting process on why you know ron nevison didn't want the song on the album gene and paul uh did but at the end of the day I think Ron Nevison probably was like, hey, guys, you brought me in to help you. Let me do it. And uh, so, you know, that's, uh, you know, kind of a short wrap-up of uh, Crazy Nights. And, uh, you know, 
because I think uh, next album was uh, their last album of the eighties was uh, Hot in the Shade, which was uh, kind of a weird album for Kiss. It was uh, basically all demos, one uh, cover of Hide Your Heart, and uh, you know it, it was uh, I think one of the worst Kiss albums because you could tell they just phoned it in, and uh, you know whereas like Crazy Nights to me was Bruce Kulick's true debut. Uh, with Kiss because I think you know he got his feet wet with Asylum and uh, you know but he really had some and I don't say this uh, very much but he had some Van Halen like solos on Crazy Nights and he just ripped it and then you know Hot in the Shade was just kind of uh, just all over the place uh, you know it's 15 songs which is the, the largest uh, Kiss album ever uh, in terms of uh the number of songs and uh you know it was just just kind of there uh you could tell that they just you know were struggling probably very almost in a depression like uh state after crazy nights hadn't done what they wanted um and uh this i think marks the first appearance of tommy thayer uh i think he wrote a song uh on uh a song or two on uh, Hot in the Shade, and he, of course, is in Kiss now. So, uh, you know, that's uh, an interesting... Uh, you know, Kiss, so many musicians have played on Kiss, uh, you know, and, and a lot of uh, ghost players on this album as well. You know, Kevin Valentine, the on-and-off-again drummer of Cinderella when Fred Curry, uh, you know, wasn't on uh, their albums. And, you know, he drummed on You Love to Hate Me. And... Uh, you know, they had a keyboardist, you know, I think uh, Pat Regan paid, uh, paid, probably paid to play, knowing Gene, uh, he played bass on Cadillac Dreams. And, uh, you know, Kiss kind of ended the 80s on, you know, somewhat of a dud, you know, and, you know, this is, uh, you know, certainly the musical uh, climate hadn't changed yet, you know, in terms of uh, grunge and Nirvana and, and uh, Pearl Jam and, and Bands like that, but uh, I think with Guns N' Roses blowing up around this era, uh, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't say Guns N' Roses was grunge, but, you know, they kind of were compared to what was popular at the time, you know, you know, the Rats, the Warrants, the Bon Jovis, the Def Leppards, the Kiss. I think Guns N' Roses was a good preview of, you know, what was coming, and, and I don't think Kiss was really prepared for that, you know, because in the, in the 90s, Kiss, uh, until the reunion tour, the, you know, they were all over the map. And, uh, you know, although in 92, they, they did bring Vinnie Vincent back to write a couple songs on revenge. And coincidentally, I thought they were the best songs on revenge, which is really the ultimate rub on Vinnie is he's so good at writing with kiss. And, and I think he was probably, I think trying from what I understand, angling to get back in the band. Cause you know, at, at this point, the Vinnie Vincent invasion hadn't released anything in like four or five years. And, you know, he, you know, his reputation wasn't that good. And, you know, I, you know, Kiss was relatively relevant at that time in 92, but uh, just didn't happen for him. And my favorite probably Kiss album, and I know I said I'd just review Kiss in the 80s, but I'll just briefly go over what they did in the 90s, is uh, Kiss's ego is so great that they actually played on their own tribute album, <laughs> which I don't think any band's ever done before or since. Um, you know, Kiss in 94, the album was released called Kiss My Ass, and you had a lot of great bands on it. You know, Lenny Kravitz, 
um, the Mighty Mighty Boston's, you know, the Gen Blossoms, and uh, um, you know, just Garth Brooks and Kiss played on Hard Luck Woman with Garth Brooks, you know, and it's just like <laughs> you know that had to be Gene's idea. Hey, Garth, you need some help on the song? We kind of know it. Um, and I'm sure Garth Brooks was like, Gene, I think I got this. Uh, I don't think you're supposed to play on your own tribute album. And Gene was probably, yeah, fuck it, why not? So, uh, and then uh, they kind of, their next album they released was, was kind of a weird album release. It was Carnival of Souls, which was done a few years earlier, but for whatever reason got shelved. And I think <clears throat> it shows you the power of the fans. It, that album was, you know, leaked and, you know, I think Gene and Paul were probably like, well, if people are, you know, listening to it on illegal download, things like Napster and whatnot, we, why don't we just release it so we can make some money off of it? And uh, I'll say this about Carnival of Souls. It's a great Stone Temple Pilots album. <laughs> I mean, this is Kiss. Clearly, like, they were trying to sound like the Cars on Unmasked and, you know, Pink Floyd on The Elder and, you know, and the middle Kiss albums like Bon Jovi and Def Leppard. Yeah, this is Kiss clearly trying to be grunge. And, uh, you know, there's a couple good songs on it. You know, uh, The Jungle's a great song. Uh, but it just was like, you know, if I want to hear a grunge, I'll listen to, you know, Pearl Jam. And then uh, shortly uh, thereafter, they did the reunion tour. And, uh, you know, the reunion tour is still going. But not with Ace and Peter. It's with Tommy Thayer's Ace, Eric Singer's uh, Peter Chris. So... Kiss in 2014 basically is the Jewish Menudo. So, uh, you know, I think I've uh, covered it as good as I could. And, uh, you know, I hope you guys like this episode. Um, never thought I could uh, do an episode on my own. So I hope you guys didn't mind me combining my two loves of pro wrestling and Kiss. And uh, periodically, uh, when a guest drops out or uh, can't make it uh, till a later date, uh, I'll try and do one like this where it's a subject that you guys want to hear about and that I'm knowledgeable about, which really limits the field to uh kiss Vinny Vincent or, uh, you know, sting appearing at survivor series. But, uh, there'll be a couple more of these uh, next week. I'm excited to say that, uh, on Tuesday, the great Joey Allen from warrant is coming down and Joey's one of my favorite guitar players from the eighties. And, uh, it was in, uh, you know, really the last big band to make it out of the eighties warrant, you know, whereas, Quiet Riot, Rat, Motley Crue brought in the 80s. I think Warrant, in terms of the L.A. metal scene, was the exclamation point before the grunge took over. So I can't wait for that. And you guys all know that we are on uh, SoundCloud, of course, and iTunes, just Inappropriate Earl on either. And on iTunes, please, if you can, leave us a review. It helps, uh, you know, it just makes us look better. Us makes me look better. Um, you know, the more reviews you get, the more buzz you get. And, you know, ultimately my goal uh, through the fans, it's the only way I can do it is through you guys, is to, you know, get featured on iTunes. And it just helps. Helps me get bigger guests because then they see, oh, you know, it's relevant. And, you know, some guests I ask to do it, you know, uh, they kind of look at me like, who the fuck are you? And I, I can't blame them for that. But uh, I'm doing my best trying to give you guys a fun podcast. I know there's a lot of podcasting alternatives out there. And I appreciate you guys listening. And, uh, you know, have a good Thanksgiving. Uh, be safe out there. And don't eat too much because you don't want to look uh, like Ingve Malmsteen. So this is Inappropriate Earl. Thank you guys again. You guys are the best. I really do this for you guys because right now there's no money in this. 
Uh, I'm not complaining, but uh, I do it because I love hearing that people enjoy listening to me. So you follow me on Twitter at Earl Skakel. That's E-A-R-L-S-K-A-K-E-L. Same thing on Facebook, Instagram as well. I'm kind of getting into Instagram, so I'd appreciate follows on there too. And I'll see you guys soon. Hope you enjoy this. Hey.